All right, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, but before I start the study, I just wanted to make a brief comment about what we're doing now with the overheads. Um, you know, this was, of course, in response to the request that some of you made to have some way to track the outline as, as I go through it. Uh, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from several of you that it's been helpful to you, and I appreciate that it has been helpful. We're going to continue to do that. And as we go along, uh, hopefully I'll fine-tune what I put up on the overhead uh, so that it becomes even more uh, easy to track what I'm doing. But I wanted to let you know that this is something new for me in the sense that I'm not used to my outline being very specific and connected to what you're seeing in the overhead. And I will typically, in, in terms of the outline that I prepare to teach you, I will typically build in some flex room. And what I mean by that is as the Lord is, I feel during the, the actual teaching moment, as the Lord is stirring me to emphasize certain things, I will, I will typically, what they, they call in the business, go off script. Uh, not that I ever teach from a script, I, I teach from an outline. But nevertheless, I, I want you to know there are times where you might see something on the outline, uh, on the overhead, that I'm not particularly emphasizing and um, I don't mean it to be confusing for you, but I'm trying to stay as close to what you see in the outlines as I possibly can. And um, for those moments where I'm not synced up exactly with the outline, I hope you can, uh, I hope you can find your way back to where I'm going and uh, that I don't lose you in the process. I uh, just wanted to alert you that, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress as we're, as we're implementing uh, the overheads. All right, so for our study today, we are back in Acts chapter 2. We have been studying through what is traditionally called the Pentecost Sermon of the Apostle Peter. And I've emphasized before, but it's worth saying again, that uh, this is not technically a sermon. He's not in a church service. He's not preaching to the choir, so to speak. He is absolutely, along with the other 119 people that were gathered in the upper room at the beginning of chapter 2, as they were filled with the Spirit, that group has now spilled out into the streets, and there's a crowd, as we come to the end of chapter 2, of some 3,000 people from the city of Jerusalem that have gathered to find out what is going on as these people have been filled with the Spirit, and they're all speaking in known languages, but the languages are known to the hearers, not to the speakers. It's clearly miraculous what's going on, and Peter sees that as an evangelism or gospel opportunity. So he stands up and begins to speak to the crowd. This is preaching in the streets, so to speak, not so much a traditional sermon. And um, we have identified that in all that Peter has to say, and this is, this is the first gospel encounter, as I've been describing them, in the history of Christianity. This is the first moment that true followers of the Lord, true believers in the Lord, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit in this way for the first time, have the opportunity to represent the gospel to unbelievers. And so it's important for us to recognize that this message is meant to serve as an example to us. It's meant to serve as kind of a template for us to understand how it is that we can and we should share the gospel when the Lord gives us our own moments to share with those that don't yet know the Lord. 
and have not yet believed the gospel. And so what we've been focused on is, what did Peter really emphasize? What was his focus? What was he concerned to communicate to the crowd that day? And does it really fit what typically churches in our present generation emphasize should be the focal point of a, of a sharing of the gospel with unbelievers? What we've seen is that he had one main focus, and that focus remains consistent, not just here on the day of Pentecost, but in all the subsequent preachings throughout the book of Acts, and that main focus is Jesus himself. Jesus is the story. He is the core and the heart of the gospel. But the way he tells the story is through what I'm identifying as seven sub-themes. Now, we have covered all but two of those sub-themes. We're going to focus on the final two today. And those final two are, Peter begins to speak about the ascension of Christ, which is, and I want, I want you to notice this, it's an event that none in the crowd that are gathered knew about, had ever heard about, had ever conceptualized, had ever even thought was possible. Now, there are some among the 120 disciples who are representing the church at this point, and specifically we're talking about the 11 who were there to see the ascension of Christ. They already know about the ascension. And most likely, during the 10-day waiting period between the, um, between the ascension of Christ and now the day of Pentecost, they've been in the upper room, the 120, and most likely the 11 apostles haven't kept that information about the ascension of Christ secret. They haven't reserved it just for themselves. I am sure Peter and the other apostles have shared in the room what they witnessed, what they saw when Jesus was lifted up from the earth, disappeared into that glorious cloud covering the Lord's presence, and then entered into heaven itself. But the 3,000 people that are gathered out of curiosity, this is brand new information to them. And so Peter focuses the crowd's attention on the ascension of Christ. The second element that he focuses their attention on is what I'm calling identification. And what I mean by that is he wants to make clear to the people that he's proclaiming the gospel to exactly who Jesus actually is. So this has been an issue throughout the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. You remember in our study back in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus had a time of interaction with his own disciples and he even asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they reported, well, some of them say that you're John the Baptist alive from the dead or you're one of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah that have come back to minister again. And of course, then that leads to that, that uh, critically important interaction with Peter where he asks the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And for the very first time, one of the disciples, one of the close followers of the Lord Jesus makes a public proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of God. And so what we have here is Peter now carrying that understanding that Jesus said only the Father could have revealed that to Peter's heart. He's carrying that to the crowd now. And he's wanting to make sure that the crowd rightly understands, at least from a proclamation standpoint, it won't guarantee that they believe it, 
but it will guarantee that they've heard the truth. They know, and there is no excuse on the day of judgment. They know exactly who Jesus is from a biblical perspective. And so we're going to focus on these three principles from this portion of Peter's sermon today. The ascension of Christ and the identification of Christ. I say three because he's going to break the identification down into two specific points of identification. Now, let's read the section we're going to cover this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2, and where we left off was at the end of verse 32. So I'm going to read verse 32 again and carry us forward to the end of Peter's message that day, which ends in verse 36. Reading from verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and at this point he quotes from the Old Testament, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 36 is how Peter concludes his gospel presentation on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you are crucified. Now from that point as Peter ends his message, and this will carry us over our next study in Acts will, Lord willing, be two weeks from today because we have home church next Sunday morning. But in two weeks, we'll pick up in the next portion where we see the reaction of the crowd. What do they do with all of this that that Peter has proclaimed that day? But our focus today is on how Peter brings it to a conclusion. Now, you understand the principle that whenever you tell a story to someone, one of the most important things in good storytelling is it's got to have a good ending. If your story doesn't have a good ending you'll just kind of, you know, and in, in, this is kind of a play on words, your story will just kind of peter out. And his story does, does peter out, but it peters out in all of the best ways. This is a grand finale of his message. And when he ends the message, the way that he does with the information that he focuses on, what we'll see, and we'll just jump ahead to this very next verse, uh, which we'll save for two weeks from today. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now this is a, this is a great ending to the message. It's a, it's a powerful ending to the message, but it's not exactly the ending that we might expect. And what I mean by that is it's not focused exactly on the information that we might typically expect a gospel presentation to end with. What I mean by that? Well, first, again, he's talking about the ascension. He, and the ascension here is just 
The word ascension as a theological principle is just replaced by a, a, a synonymous word, a parallel word. And the word in verse 36 is the word, um, uh, excuse me, uh, verse, um, yeah, th- thank you, 33. Uh, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father. The word exalted replaces the word ascension and it's describing the same event, the same moment, the same experience. But now it's from a slightly different perspective. The word ascension focuses on what happened to Jesus when he returned to heaven from the disciples' perspective. There on earth, we talked about this when we studied the ascension in great detail in chapter one, there on earth and their perspective is limited. All they can see is what their natural eyes enable them to see. Later, the Lord's going to fill spiritual and theological meaning into what their eyes have witnessed. But that day of the ascension of Christ, they were on earth. They saw him lifted from earth into the sky. They saw him disappear into a cloud. And that was the conclusion of what they were observing. The word exalted shifts the perspective now from earth to heaven. And it describes what happened at the ascension of Christ when he actually entered into heaven and how God interacted with him. So what I want you to consider is Peter chooses this as the way to conclude his gospel presentation. He's talking about heavenly realities which are difficult and challenging even for believers to track with, even for believers to follow, even for believers to understand. Now, we have been changed by the new birth experience and by being filled with the Spirit of God. And so we're able to understand much more than unbelievers are capable even of understanding. But there are times when I'm teaching about heavenly realities. And not every study that we do is a heavenly reality study. But when we are focused on on such things, I have a sense of this is a challenging study and it's challenging for you to follow. It's challenging for you to fully grasp all of the implications of that heavenly reality. And why is it challenging for us? Because we're not there. We've never been there. We've never had that personal experience yet. Yes, heavenly things have already happened to us, but in terms of our personal experience, we've never yet been transported to heaven other than when we read passages of scripture that kind of transport us into heaven and describe heaven for us and what has gone on there and what is going on there. But it's challenging even for believers. How much more do you think a proclamation of heavenly realities is challenging for unbelievers. And yet this is where Peter brings the grand finale of his evangelism presentation to its conclusion point. He proclaims the truth that is critically important for them to understand and he doesn't leave the gospel story on earth. So what important parts of the gospel story happened on earth? Well, Jesus entered the world. He was born in a unique birth, a virgin birth. Then on earth, he lived out his life in this world, the only individual in all of human history to ever never sin. 
and therefore uniquely qualified to be Messiah, to be Savior. And then he offered himself publicly in a sacrificial death upon a cross in order to deal with the core issue of what was dividing us from fellowship with God the Father. And then he rose from the dead to conquer the greatest enemy that humanity has ever faced. And all of those things took place here. They took place on earth. They took place in public observation and witness. But when he ascended to heaven, the earth lost track of what was happening to him as soon as he disappeared in that ascension cloud. And now what's being proclaimed are things that no one on earth can know for certain unless it is revealed and proclaimed in such a way as Peter does it here in this message. And I just wanted to, for this, this, this portion of our consideration of what Peter preached, I just wanted to expand the boundaries of what you might think is appropriate to share with unbelievers and to consider he's taking them to territory that's not comfortable for them to go to and he's proclaiming things that they don't naturally ever think about and he is by his words forcing them in a sense to consider realities that change everything about life if they are true. I mean, imagine if a human being really did die a sacrificial death for the rest of humanity and really did rise from the dead in a conquering way and really did leave this world and enter into heaven and as we're gonna see in just a moment, sit down upon the throne of God and, and especially that last part, don't you think it changes everything? It absolutely does. And yet none of the people that were there listening to him that day were ready to hear it or thought they were ready to hear it. And not a single one of them had ever thought about this before. So there will be moments, there will be opportunities that the Lord brings our way to share the gospel story with those that have never heard it and never understood it and have never even thought about it. And yet, don't don't automatically limit what you share with them to the things that they're more comfortable to think about. You know, Jesus was a man here on earth. He did miracles. All of those things are important to say. But he ends with this proclamation that he is the exalted one. Now, In this exaltation proclamation, what I want you to notice is in verse 33, the presence of this word, therefore. Therefore is, of course, a connector word. And it connects what he's just been proclaiming, specifically verse 32, to what he's about to unfold in verses 33 through 36. This is why I wanted to read verse 32. Let me reread it once more. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted. So what is the connection between the resurrection and the exaltation? The connection is God has always planned and purposed from before the foundation of the world 
to exalt one human being from earth to heaven and to seat that one human being upon his throne and to call that one human being the Lord and to call that one human being the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. But who could possibly qualify for that? And the point of the connection is verse 32. Only the resurrected one could be the exalted one. And the resurrected one, therefore, is the one who in the next logical step of God's unfolding plan and purpose was then exalted. He wasn't just resurrected from the dead and left on earth to mill around and interact with human beings at this point in God's unfolding plan. He was taken from this earth and exalted. And it describes the exaltation here as being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now first, I think you already all understand the meaning of the word exalted, but I want to just make sure the definition of exalted is to elevate or to lift up, to raise one thing above other things. And in this case, the category that's in consideration is human beings. The idea of being an exalted human being is that one human being is being raised and lifted up, elevated above all other human beings who have ever lived starting with Adam all the way through to the present moment in history as Peter is proclaiming it and throughout the end of human history as we know it until the last human being has been born in this world just before the grand finale and conclusion of God's purpose for history. This one being elevated, raised up above all others. But in his proclamation of Christ being the elevated one, he links it to the throne of God, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now we have studied this concept before, uh, but it's been a while and it never hurts to rehearse basic principles of heaven because, as I mentioned a minute ago, heaven is so different from the earth. Things in heaven are not at all like things on earth. Eventually, one day, in the, in the culminating purposes of God, earth will become very much like heaven. In fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, heaven comes down to earth, and earth becomes heavenly. But at this point in history, as Peter's proclaiming, and even to our point in history, earth is very much unlike heaven. And so... To understand heavenly things from a heavenly perspective requires some study, some consideration, and some periodic rehearsal. So what does it mean to be exalted to the right hand of God? First, um, oh, and I, gosh, I, this is where I jumped off of my outline here uh, for your sake. I asked a couple of questions about exalted. When was Jesus exalted? Okay, so we've already covered that. That was at the ascension of Christ. And then the second is, how high was he exalted? The concept of elevate, the definition of the word explains that for us, which is he was lifted up above all others. How high he's raised or elevated as high as it's possible for any person to be elevated. So now we're on the right hand of God concept and we have two questions connected to that as well. What it doesn't mean and what it does mean. So what doesn't 
being elevated to the right hand of God means mean and the reason why we need to consider that is because there's in 2000 years since this event happened there's lots and lots and lots of Christian tradition that's kind of encrusted the truth and it's always the job of a teacher of God's word to separate tradition from truth and to understand it's it's uh, it's possible to preserve the truth without having to uh, continue traditions that are not actually based that are not actually based in the truth. So, what is the tradition of the right hand of God concept as it relates to Jesus and it relates to His ascension, relates to His exaltation? I've talked about this before, but the the principle basically in Christian tradition is this: that Jesus went back to heaven at the ascension of Christ. He entered into the the throne room of heaven. He had an interaction with God the Father in which God the Father recognized and acknowledged that Jesus had accomplished the plan and purpose of salvation. He honored his son and he said to him these words, which we'll just jump down to verse 34 for a second. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So as Jesus entered into heaven, what we have captured in verse 34 is a conversation that, that takes place between two individuals. Those two individuals are God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father speaks to the Son and he says to him in that exchange, sit at my right hand. And the tradition goes along these lines. God the Father has his throne, which is at the very center and heart of heaven. Okay, no one has any problem with that. I think you should understand that clearly. We should all believe that. But when he says to Jesus, sit at my right hand, where is he telling him to actually sit? That's the key issue of rightly understanding the right hand. So the tradition goes like this. There's the big throne that God the Father sits on. And then right next to him, there's a second throne that's established so that in heaven, if you're looking from the standpoint of someone approaching the throne of God, you now see how many thrones? Two. And the idea would be you see the main one, which is where God the Father sits, and then from our perspective, not from his perspective, from our perspective, you would see in your vision, which side of the throne of God would you see the second throne on? The left. So you're approaching the throne and you see the main one and you see on his right hand, you see, which would be our left. I hope I haven't confused everybody. Uh, You see a second, probably, although the details are never given, probably a smaller throne. Maybe all, maybe looks identical, but just a little bit smaller. And Jesus is sitting on the little bit smaller throne. God, the father is sitting on the, the big throne. Is that the way it actually is in heaven? And the answer is no. Um, I don't have this in the notes, but let's, let's jump over here to Revelation for a moment. Chapter 4. Revelation 4 and 5, just to be clear. Uh, I don't have time to teach this in its full context, of course. But Revelation 4 and 5 are the description of the ascension of Christ. It, what, it's what actually happened in the ascension of Christ. And the scene is in heaven, and John the Apostle, who is the writer of the book of Revelation, has been, by 
angelic escort. He's been escorted into the throne room of heaven in the spirit. He's not physically there. He's spiritually there. And he sees the ascension event unfolding. So what's happening here, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp this, but John is experiencing this years after it actually happened. But he's describing it as if he was there. The Lord is showing, in a sense, a kind of a... a how many of you have watched a, a TV series like, you know, where there's one, one episode of a TV series leading to the next episode and the story's all connected? How many of you ever watched a TV series like that? And at the beginning of every episode, they'll show you a brief recap of what's happened in previous episodes so that you're not completely lost, right? So that's exactly what's happening here. The events already happened, but God is showing John a spiritual recap of what happened in the ascension. Reading from verse one, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now there's more descriptions after this through the rest of the chapter, but the main point is this. It's a very detailed account of what John saw when he was escorted into the throne room of heaven. And he saw a throne in the center of everything and one who was seated on the throne who was clearly God the Father. And surrounding that one throne, he saw what? 24 additional thrones. Each one of those 24 thrones had what is called an elder seated upon it. And I'm certainly not going to get into who were those guys today. But the point is, he saw a grand total of 25 thrones. I will just tell you that when Jesus ascended and was exalted at the right hand of God, he did not sit down on any one of the surrounding 24 thrones. They were already occupied. He didn't walk up to any one of the 24 guys and say, okay, get out, that's my seat. They were occupied by the 24 elders. But he did enter and he did sit down at the right hand of God at God the Father's invitation when he said to his son, sit at my right hand. So where did he sit? Did John fail to see the smaller throne just to the left of the big throne and fail to describe it? The answer is no. So where did Jesus sit? He sat down on that one central throne. Now, isn't it a little crowded on that throne? Because God the Father's already there. Isn't it a little crowded? The answer is no. Why? God the Father doesn't have one really important thing, a physical body. So how could God describe his invitation to his son as sit at my right hand if he doesn't even have a hand? If you don't have a body, you don't have a hand. Are we all clear on that? Okay, so what, 
is God himself mixed up when he says, sit at my right hand that doesn't exist. No, what we're talking about here, and this is a theological concept that's again, these, these are heavenly realities, it's hard to grasp, it's difficult to follow. We're talking about the, the biblical principle of personification. And what that means is simply, God the Father is being described in human terms for our brains to grasp. We're looking at an entirely spiritual reality, but we need to understand it in human dimension, so to speak. So God the Father is seated upon his throne, but he's seated without a body. What does that mean? Well, the best, honestly, the best analogy, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament. Do you remember when the tabernacle of Moses was completed? And you have the, you have the house of God now in tent form symbolic tent form divided into two rooms and in the inner room there was only one item of furniture remember what the one item of furniture was it was the mercy seat the ark of the covenant and when moses completed the tabernacle that pillar of fire and cloud that had led them through the wilderness suddenly descended directly on top of the tabernacle and filled the tabernacle and specifically made itself visible. This pillar of fire and cloud made itself visible directly over the mercy seat so that as Moses entered in and interacted with God as he was revealing himself, he saw the glory Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord's presence directly over the seat, but no hand, no rear end sitting on the seat, no body, just a spiritual symbol of a presence. And so in heaven, that's exactly how God the Father sits upon his throne, minus maybe the, the physical evidence of the, the, the smoke and the fire just his presence directly in relationship to the throne. And so when Jesus entered into heaven, he was exalted to the right hand of God, which doesn't mean that he sat to one side of the central throne. He sat down on the throne. And later in the book of Revelation, Jesus even says this by way of testimony. He says, I sat down on my father's throne not a secondary throne. This is where tradition means well, but it can kind of jar our perspective in entirely the wrong direction. Jesus is the only one we will ever see sitting upon the throne. We will have our future moment where we'll be in heaven with the Lord and we will see the throne of God. But we won't see two sitting upon the throne, even though there are two sitting upon the throne. We will only see one. We will see the Lord Jesus. And of course, what he had said to his disciples in the Last Supper, uh, circumstance is very important. When he said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Doesn't mean he is the Father. It means he is the physical and visible representation of the Father, like Father, like Son. All right, so it doesn't mean that there is a a literal physical presence of God the Father upon the throne. And it doesn't mean there's a second throne that is established next to the central throne. So what does it mean that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? The right hand was a very common way of expressing you are second in command. That's what it meant. 
So kings in those days did have what we now still call in our culture a right-hand man. And it simply means I'm in charge, but I have someone that's just as in charge as me, except I'm the only one above them. I'm the only one above them. They are second only to me, and they're above all of the rest of you guys. That's what right-hand man means. So when Jesus sat down upon the central throne of God, Scripture describes it as sitting down at the right hand of God so that we would not mistake and think he's somehow taken God the Father's place. He is sitting in God the Father's place, but he hasn't taken his place. Do you understand the distinction? God the Father is still supreme in authority, even above the Son. But that's the only one that is above the Son. From the moment of his exaltation forward, Jesus is elevated above all other beings in all of existence and over all of creation. And he represents the fullness of God the Father's authority. Now the second, and we're heading back to Acts here, the second emphasis in verse 33 that Peter makes, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what Peter's doing here is he's linking the event of the ascension of Christ to the events of the day of Pentecost. Now on a calendar, a human calendar, our calendar, those two events are separated by 10 days. Jesus ascended and then 10 days later, the day of Pentecost events happened. So what Peter wants them to understand, the crowd that is now listening to this gospel proclamation, is he wants them to understand the outpouring that they've gathered out of curiosity to learn more about is directly linked and related to the ascension and exaltation of Christ that preceded it by 10 days. And that when Jesus returned to heaven and had his interaction with God the Father, There were several things that happened, but one of those things is that Jesus received a special gift from God the Father. And Peter calls it a reception from the Father in verse 33 of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now for your notes, I won't take us and reread these portions. We studied these in great detail before, but for the sake of time, uh, you can link in your notes Luke chapter 24, verse 49, and Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus had taught his disciples before it ever even happened that there was coming a fulfillment of the promise of the coming and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So my question is, what does it mean that Jesus received the promise from the Father of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that when Jesus returned to heaven, he himself was filled with the Holy Spirit. When when was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit? From his baptism. Now, it doesn't mean that he was somehow disconnected from the Holy Spirit prior to that. Obviously, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been perfectly united throughout all of eternity, not just in history. But in the event of the baptism of Christ, 
The heavens were open. John the Baptist, as official witness there, appointed by the Father, saw in the form of a dove the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven and, and resting upon him and remaining upon him to signify that all of his public ministry would be empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus returned to heaven to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't his personal reception of the Holy Spirit. He didn't receive in this passage the Holy Spirit. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to receive the promise? In a nutshell, it means that Jesus received from the Father the authority to dispense or to pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people on earth. Now, keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a power, though he, he has ultimate power at his disposal. But he is a person, and he is one of the three divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so to receive the authority to dispense or pour out the Spirit is setting a new, as far as human beings understand, this was planned in eternity past by God himself, that he's, what we're, we're seeing is a, a new ordering of the authority structure within the Godhead itself. And the idea here is, God the Father is supreme. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit submit to him. Second only to God the Father is God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. But in order to make that evident to people in the world that don't understand these nuances of God's authority in heaven, God gave to the Son the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. And then the testimony through his followers to proclaim that truth in their hearing. And so the idea that the disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit that day. They want the crowd to hear and understand. It's the Lord Jesus who returned and was exalted to the right hand of God who has poured this out. He's responsible for what you're seeing today. The focus remains on him. Now, there's an important linking here that I don't want us to miss. Head back if you would, and we did this a few studies ago, but let's do it again. Head back in the Old Testament to the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. You remember that Peter quoted the prophecy of Joel earlier on the day of Pentecost in our study uh, of his proclamation of the gospel that day? We're going to be in Joel chapter 2. There's one more detail that I've been saving from the Joel proclamation for this study. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to look at Verses 27 and 28. 28 is the description of what happens on the day of Pentecost in Joel's future. Joel will not be there to see it, but he's prophesying about it. But verse 27 is connected and in a very critically important way is linked. But it, it's, it's hidden unless you look for it and unless you study it. Verse 27, this is the Lord speaking. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And then this connector word in the next line, and 
which tells us the same person is speaking. And who is the person from verse 27? The Lord your God. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And it goes on to talk about wonders in the heavens and blood and fire and smoke on the earth. And we've, we've studied all those details. What I want you to notice is, who is speaking in verse 27? The Lord your God. And what he says he will do in the future on the day of Pentecost in verse 28. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So who is the one pouring out the spirit according to Joel's prophecy? The Lord your God. And then Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, it's Jesus who has poured out everything that you're seeing and hearing happening to us, us, the 120 disciples. And he's speaking to the crowd. And essentially what he's just done is he has filled in a blank from Joel's prophecy. The blank is implied. It's not obvious as you read Joel's prophecy, but Peter fills in an additional name. And he wants us to know that the Lord your God, who's in verse 27, the one who is credited in verse 28 of Joel's prophecy as being the one to pour out the Spirit, is Jesus, who was exalted to the right hand of God. He's just told a crowd of people, and I want you to catch the impact, because as soon as he says these words, almost, they're cut to the heart. And they are humbled and they're crying out, what do we do now that this is, we realize this is true? Is he has just proclaimed that the one that they cried out just a few days before this to be crucified. He's not our king. Caesar's our king. Crucify him. That same one is the Lord their God. It's an awesome declaration that Peter's making on Pentecost. Now let's, let me head back over there to Acts. Got a couple of more details to cover. In verse, in verse 33, he ends verse 33 after proclaiming that he, the Lord Jesus, is the one that poured out this these events, this, this whole thing of speaking in tongues and languages that, that were unlearned, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And what he's just done at the end of verse 33 is he has now made the crowd witnesses along with the 120 disciples. The 120 disciples have witnessed much more than the crowd has witnessed. But what Peter says is, now that you've witnessed these events on the day of Pentecost, you need to understand this is proof that Jesus was the crucified one, the resurrected one, and the exalted, the ascended exalted one who is now seated upon the throne. And the miracle that happens here today on the day of Pentecost that you've just observed with your own eyes and ears is the proof, and therefore you are witnesses of these truths. Verse 34, 
For David did not ascend into the heavens. And here Peter is using the same argument that he used earlier in his message. When he had quoted Psalm 16 in our earlier study, and Psalm 16 is a prophecy about the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. And he said, David was never raised from the dead. We still have David's tomb here among us to this day. We can go visit it together. And his body is still buried there. He was never raised from the dead, proving that David was not speaking about himself, but was prophesying about a coming Messiah. Peter uses the same argumentation here. For David did not ascend into the heavens. And he's about to quote an ascension passage from the Old Testament. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now he's quoting here, we won't go back and read it because it's word for word what actually is there in the Old Testament. He's quoting from a psalm and it's one of the most important of the psalms. It's of course a messianic psalm where as a song, David is singing a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, all of the Psalms are inspired scripture, the word of God. And the Messianic Psalms, as I've emphasized before, are even more important than the other Psalms. But even among the Messianic Psalms, this one sits at the top of the heap of importance. Why? It's the single most, this verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, it's the single most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. It's quoted more often than any other Old Testament passage. And it is a mysterious passage. The rabbis of that day struggled in their interpretation of this passage because it confused them. And it should be readily understandable about why it was so confusing. It's a conversation. It's a snapshot. And I'm saying the conversation is a snapshot of the ascension of Christ, the return of Jesus to heaven. But the the rabbis didn't believe in the ascension. They didn't understand that the Messiah would die on a cross, be raised from the dead, and then return to heaven and sit down on the throne of God. So when they read it, and they read a conversation between two individuals that are both identified by the same title, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. They were confused by it. And so they just kind of did what some theologians even believing theologians do to this day with certain difficult portions of scripture. I've talked about this before. I've got a whole wall of commentaries in my study library. And I'll come to difficult passages sometime and I'll go, oh good, I've got three commentaries on that. Let me see what they have to say. And I'll pull the commentaries off the shelf and I'll I'll, I'll read carefully what they have to say about that mysterious portion of scripture. And out of the three Typically, one says anything about it at all. And the other two will say, and on to the next verse. And they're just kind of skip over the most difficult portions because they're just not sure what to do with it. That's what the rabbis struggled with when they came to Psalm 110, verse one. But it is a spiritual conversation and it's us through the eyes of King David because he's the one that wrote it. And he's seen something 1,500 years 
or excuse me, I think it was about a thousand years. King David lived before the coming of Christ. One thousand years before it actually happened, he is seen by the Spirit a conversation that takes place in heaven. And the conversation takes place between two. The two are God the Father and God the Son. The Lord, in this case, is God the Father. So God the Father said to my Lord, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus returning to heaven, sit at my right hand. My right hand is clearly referring to God himself, but when you read the word sit, there's a missing word just before the word sit. And we say in English, it's an implied you. What he actually was saying is to the son, you sit at my right hand. And the idea is where you sit, no one else will be sitting. You and you alone have been given this special privilege. And the meaning of sitting at his right hand, we've already established, which is you will have authority over everyone and everything with the one singular exception being myself. God the Father saying to the Son, you'll have authority over everyone, you'll have authority over everything except God the Father. And how long will his dominion seated upon the throne in heaven ruling over the kingdom of God, how long will it last? Verse 35, not forever in this case, interestingly. It says, until which the word until already indicates there's an end point to this rule. Until I make your enemies your footstool, which implies something different is going to take place after that. So what are we talking about? Turn over, keep your place in Acts. We'll come right back there. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of the most important New Testament passages. It's also one of the most more complex. It's also one of the most mysterious. It's one of the most difficult to teach, and I'm going to teach it in 30 seconds. How's that? Uh, sometime later, I'll spend more time with it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, meaning he was the first to be raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead in the midst of history. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that's you and me. Then comes the end. The end of what? The end of history as we know it. And interestingly, the end of a particular form of the kingdom of God. Then comes the end when he delivers, that's God the Son, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign, and here's the same operative key word, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is another quote of Psalm 110 verse 1. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, God the Son. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself 
will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What we're talking about is a concept that theologians have captured with a a phrase that's not a Bible phrase, but it is a Bible concept and a Bible principle. It's called the mediatorial kingdom. And it simply means between the ascension and the second coming, there will be an expression in creation and in existence in heaven and on earth of the kingdom of God. And we see Jesus as the primary exalted one for the duration from the ascension to the second coming. But when all things are finally concluded, Jesus will not be the primary one. He himself will subject himself along with, of course, all of us. And God the Father will then be fully revealed at the end of all things as being all in all. Now, what exactly that's going to look like, we'll have to say for another day. But the point of it is that when Jesus is enthroned by God the Father, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, that's what's in reference and that's what's in view. Now, God the Father makes a promise here. He makes a commitment to the Son. The commitment is, until I make your enemies your footstool. Who are the enemies of Christ? Anyone that doesn't submit to his rule. Anyone that doesn't acknowledge him as Lord and Messiah, they are his enemy. Now, can someone be transformed from enemy to friend? Yes, I was. Yes, you were. But as long as you refuse to acknowledge him who is seated upon the throne, you remain his enemy. And all his enemies will be made his footstool. It doesn't mean all will come to his side. It doesn't mean all will acknowledge him. It doesn't mean all will believe in him and follow him but it does mean not a single person in all of history will be allowed to ultimately rebel against him everyone will be made his footstool what is footstool all about when you're sitting on a chair how many of you have a footstool under your desk to help your back like i have a a a footrest under my desk at home in order to take some pressure off my back. Does Jesus need pressure taken off his back? I don't think so. But it is a signification and symbol of dominion. To be under the feet, meaning, simply meaning he has full authority and dominion over what is under his feet. And the idea is, in history, there's not going to be any enemies of God in eternity. In history, God is progressively making all of his enemies his footstool. Now, and the worship team can come on up. Now in verse, heading back to Acts, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's a key word here, and the key word is certain. And Peter says, let all the house of Israel, he's he's preaching to the house of Israel at this point. It doesn't mean the gospel is limited to the house of Israel. We know the gospel is a universal message of salvation. But that day he was speaking to Jews. That day he was speaking to the house of Israel. And by extension now, this same message is proclaimed 
to all who live in the world. And there is one thing that they are to know for certain, and that is the true identity of Jesus. Who is he actually? And uh, Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, tags Jesus using internet terminology. He tags Jesus with two key identifiers, two key names. Now, we studied years ago as a church the names of God. And even the Lord Jesus has many more than singular, a singular one or two names. And each name has significance. Each name has importance. But in the biblical proclamation of the gospel, two rise in importance above all others. That is, rightly understand that he has been identified as God himself. God the Father has made sure that people on earth can know with certainty that Jesus is the Lord. A name that in the Old Testament was only ever associated with God the Father as far as Israel was concerned. But now is being associated with the Lord Jesus. We won't take time to read it, but the Philippians 2 passage, verses five, or verses 9 through 11, is a, is a key proclamation by the Apostle Paul of this same truth. That the name Jesus is now forever and always associated with the name Lord. And he is the Christ. He's a special one, the chosen one. He is the Messiah, the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. All right, so where does that leave us in terms of connection to our lives today? We're at our application uh, screen up here. First, we are called along with the crowd that day. Now, most of you are already believers in this saving gospel but we are called to acknowledge that jesus and jesus alone out of all of human history is exalted at god's right hand in heaven right now meaning he is seated right now as i'm speaking these words upon the throne of god in heaven and that leads us of course to honor jesus is the one who has poured out his spirit upon us One of the most important things you will ever experience in this world is being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. An experience that none, even the greatest in the Old Testament, had ever experienced. And you've been privileged to experience it here and now in your present life circumstances. And it should produce a great sense of honor toward the one who poured out his Spirit upon you. Third, to trust that God the Father is still at work. He's made a commitment to his son. He's made a promise to his son. He will most surely fulfill this promise. And that is, all your enemies will be made your footstool. There is a war that is going on. And it surrounds us every single day. It's a spiritual war. And it's basically a war that boils down to who is really in charge. And God the Father is ensuring that it will be made known in history that his son is the one in charge. His son is the Lord. His son is the one that we are under his footstool. And whether they like it, whether they believe it, whether they embrace it, whether they love it or not, whether they despise it and hate it from the core of their being, they will still be required in history to bow their knee and to 
to acknowledge with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, even if it takes to the very last moment, which is the day of judgment. Doesn't mean they'll be saved by it if they do it out of a deep core heart rebellion and resistance, but they will be required to bow before his throne and before his presence. And then finally, for those of you who ever struggle at times, just in privacy, it's just you and just the Lord, no one else knows that you're struggling. Is this stuff really true? Is it worth basing my life on this? You should, along with the house of Israel, know with certainty that God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. Let's sing.